Welcome to the Upper Hand Sports Pod, where we sit down every week with some of the top coaches, trainers, and sports business managers in the industry. Hey everyone, Tim here with Upper Hand. I'm sitting alongside Miles. Uh, Our guest for this episode today is Tom Morris, who is a strength and conditioning coach for Indiana University Athletics. Uh, I had the privilege to work with Tom for four years while I was a member of the men's soccer team at IU. But Tom has a story unlike any other that we are really excited to share today. In May of 2012, uh, my senior year, he suffered a mountain biking accident that left him paralyzed from the waist down. And his story about his recovery and attitude is extremely inspiring. The first half, we go into details about fitness, coaching, training. The second half, Tom opens up about his story, his road to recovery, how to make each day better than the last, and his general outlook on life is very inspiring. For me, this was definitely close to home. My dad was paralyzed in a car accident in 94, which I go into a little bit more detail um, on the podcast. That was definitely a uh, humbling experience as well, being you know, in fourth grade and, and seeing my dad go through that stuff, you know, hanging on to, to a thread for his life, essentially, for you know, nearly two years. Yeah, guys, it's, it's about 50 minutes long. It's well worth the entire listen. We talk fitness, training, coaching and motivation, inspiration, everything you need packed into one podcast, so enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome to the Upper Hand Podcast. This is Tim, and I'm really excited to be here for today's special episode. Alongside me is another first-time co-host, Miles. Hello. This is uh, our first time together. Yeah, this, is our, this is our first podcast. Um, I got some good, get some good vibes going on right I do now. Too. I think I think it's going to be a, a special one today. I think we may have uh, found our calling here, Tim. I do too. I do too. Today we have a very exciting guest. Um, before we introduce Tom, uh, have a huge favor. If you could subscribe, unsubscribe, resubscribe, help us uh, promote the podcast and move up the ranks. That'd be fantastic. Um. Today's guest, Tom Morris, joins us today from Indiana University, where he is the Assistant Athletic Director for Athletic Performance. During his 14 years at IU, Tom has developed and implemented sports-specific strength, conditioning, flexibility, and speed and agility programs for IU's 24 men's and women's programs. Tom also works with the eight-time national champion soccer team and has worked with a multitude of other teams at IU, including track and field, men's tennis, women's basketball, diving, and more. Tom doesn't just work in fitness. He lives and breathes it day in and day out. Tom has competed in numerous cycling races, 12, 24, 36, and 72-hour adventure races, and countless triathlons of all distances. But in May of 2012, Tom's fitness journey changed forever after suffering a spinal cord injury while mountain biking and broke his C6 and C7, leaving him paralyzed from the waist down. Tom's life-changing story is one of true perseverance, crushing goals, and breaking down barriers. So without further ado, let's welcome a true inspirational hero and my good friend, Tom Morris. Wow, Tim, that's an incredible intro. I really uh, appreciate that. And thank you for having me. Absolutely, man. Other than going today? Things are great. Things are great. I've been excited about this all day, about getting in and talking to you all and uh, having the ability to share my story with you. Obviously, incredible story uh, since your accident in 2012. I mean, I think you've been... An inspiration, not to just Tim. It sounds like a lot of people out there. Before we get there, uh, just taking a, t- a few steps back uh, on how you got started in your fitness journey. Um, you know, w- what inspired you to get so heavily involved in fitness, both from a personal level and really turning it into into a career? You know, I grew up around sport. I grew up in Northeast Pennsylvania. It's kind of the heartland of football. I mean, we ever since we were you know two to three years old, I remember 
a ball of some sort being placed in our hands. And, and I played football ever since I was, you know, I don't know, probably four or five years old. And that, you know, kind of addiction to sport and just the love of being around sport to be part of, um, you know, the individual wrestling and stuff like that. And also a team setting was always the draw that just kept me so energized and, and enthused about being around it. And so my journey basically started, you know, through those young years and came up through high school and, and through college. And I just wanted to be around sport in whatever capacity. And when football was all said and done for me, you know, I just wanted to find something that I could still be part of it, you know, be around it, be, be, be still in it and, and actually still part of that team setting and, and making an influence on people. And when I was in college, it basically I was exposed to the field of strength and conditioning. And, um, you know, I volunteered and put a lot of hours in and I became and, and it really just kind of uh, opened up a doorway for me to get into a world that uh, I was helping people. I was still around, you know, the athletic population. I was still a major part of these teams. But the biggest thing was is just being still able to be so kind of enthralled and it, it invested in an actual sport itself. Um, it became a natural fit for me. And so volunteered a ton spent a ton of time in the weight room, found out that I can make a living out of this, and kind of the rest is history. Just decided to start doing that, and, and then they're paying me, and it's kind of like I've been retired forever. So life is good. Yeah, man, and, um, you know, I had the pleasure of working with you for, for four years at IU, and I know you've worked with a number of different programs at IU. Before that, you were at LaSalle and Penn State. Describe what goes into developing a strength and conditioning programs specific to a sport and how maybe how different sports differ in what types of programs you develop. You know, we are we're we're kind of that complement to uh, the the athletes themselves, like yourself, Tim. You you came to Indiana not to be the greatest weightlifter or or bodybuilder or anything like that. You came here to be the best soccer player. And from there, what I do is when I'm trying to analyze and trying to figure out what makes that person, what is going to make them develop into their best person and best um, athletic person, what I do is I look down the individual way of looking at your flaws and then trying to work on them and turning them into your strengths. The other part of that is taking the knowledge of the tradition of soccer, uh, what the coaches believe, uh, what their approach is as far as how we're going to get to a certain point, taking the both of those two ideas, both of those two philosophies and thoughts and and um, and and kind of deficiencies, but also turning them into what is going to actually make you a strong athlete. And let me break it down even a little bit. Everybody comes into our programs with some kind of flaw, no matter if you're a five-star recruit, no matter if you're just a walk-on. When you come into the program, it's our job to break down and analyze what your positives are and what your negatives are. And if you're lacking fitness or you're lacking um, strength, we're going to analyze that stuff, and we're going to analyze it and make a specific program for you and for the world of soccer we're going to work on your flaws but we're also going to make sure we're tweaking them into a fitness that's really going to be associated directly with what you have as far as the position on your on the field and so all of this stuff it differs but it's it differs in the sport and our approach but it also differs with even in the sport itself because we need to look at the individual and look where the individual's highs and lows are and once we're able to address those things i mean you can make some significant games that will complement your uh, athleticism on the field. So you put programs together for basically all the sports at IU. 
what are some differences on a team level or sport level? Let's say you're putting a program together for baseball versus soccer, diving. What types of characteristics go into planning out a year-round program based on the, the sports and different kind of functional movements and stuff like that? Yeah, so two, let's, let's go with your example right there. We'll go with soccer and baseball, kind of two different ends of the spectrum. You know, soccer has that power that we're really trying to develop, but it has a huge fitness component. We not, we not only be uh, powerful, but we need to have that fitness to be able to, you know, sustain a 90-minute game, to be able to keep moving and actually be as explosive and as, as physically de- uh, demanding as the sport may be. We need to make sure that we're matching that program up. So when I'm la- designing a program for soccer, I'm looking at making sure that we're working on a huge fitness base. But when we get you to a point where your fitness level is high enough or at least adequate enough, we're going to make sure that you're able to continue to keep demonstrating power with that. How is that? How do we keep working on that? We work on what we call power endurance. We'll make sure that we're kind of kicking your butt with the overall fitness, but then we're going to throw you into a situation of the basic stuff like a box jump or or something like that, that you're having to uh, demonstrate some kind of power movement under the duress of actual fitness and, and fatigue. Now, the opposite of that is baseball. Baseball is a power sport, hands down. What we're looking for, explosive, uh, 100% power. Really, fatigue is a limiting factor except for, uh, you know, the multitude of games maybe within a day or the just the length of what the game is going to be. But the reality is, is that the fitness isn't as big of a component. So when we're designing a fitness uh, or a, uh, a power or a strength and conditioning program for the baseball program, we're looking at power. We're looking at guy, getting our guys as strong as they physically can, trying to develop not only strength, but then allowing them to actually use that strength and make it more velocity specific. And what I mean by that is we're not getting someone to squat 300 pounds is a great thing, but getting a person to squat 300 pounds with a certain tempo, a certain velocity is the most important because what we're always trying to do is make the weight room literally match up to what the sport specific movements may be on the, on the, um, on the field of play. And that doesn't mean they look the same. It just means they're moving at that kind of same rate of speed. So two different ends of it. One is that fitness component. One is the more power component. They have crossover within. It's just a scale. You know, it's just a matter of balancing it both out on there. More power for baseball, more fitness for soccer. And then we try and match them up to, to the best that every athlete is going to be able to use. Uh, kind of going along the same lines, Tom, every, you know, coach and trainer has their own unique styles and philosophies on, you know, what they believe is most effective in producing results. Some trainers believe in heavier lifting, while others believe in, you know, more functional fitness, speed and agility, et cetera. Uh, I've had, you know, the coaches and trainers that are in your face, and I've had the ones that are super passive. You know, how would you describe your training philosophy and coaching style that you use to most effectively, like, implement across a team? Yeah, so, and I'll start with, actually, the, the second part of that question as far as my, you know, overall coaching demeanor, my overall, the way I approach things. Man, I'm not a yeller and screamer. I'm excited. I like to be optimistic, but like I don't like when people talk to me negatively. I don't like to be getting screamed at or hollered at. So when I coach, naturally to me is I just want to be upbeat, fast-paced, but be energetic. And that's how I try and I try and coach the same way as I want to be coached, but I also try and coach the way that is natural to me. And I think it's so important for athletes or for coaches, especially young coaches, to be able to get into a situation and actually coach that the way they want to coach, not 
they're not trying to mimic or, or trying to do the same as somebody else. They're coming in there and they're being themselves. The other part of that question, as far as overall philosophy, is there's a million different ways to get stronger. There's a million different ways to get more powerful. I think this, we have 15 strength coaches that are on staff that all implement different ways of training. And everybody has their own little philosophy. But the one commonality that we all share is this. We make sure that every program is comprehensive, it's progressive, and there's an overload to it. And so what I mean by comprehensive is it's head to toe, top to bottom, front to back. We're addressing the body as a whole. We're addressing the body as a perfect, balanced, symmetrical thing. Because like I always use the example, and I need to use a new example, uh, Michael Jordan, no flaw on him, front to back, head to toe, everything. He's this perfect, symmetrical, balanced athlete, and he's one of the greatest athletes, if not the greatest athlete of all time. That's what we're trying to train, and that's how we're trying to address it. The other part is the progression. If you don't have progression within your workout, you don't have a real workout. You've got to make sure that you're progressing each and every time, maybe through volume, maybe through intensity, but there needs to be a progression within that, uh, within that workout. And the last that kind of runs right with it is overload. If you're coming in and just going through activity, the reality is, is you're literally going through activity. If you don't have an overload to it, if you don't have something that's challenging you to put you in a discomfort zone, well, then you're not getting better. You're not really actually working. John Wooden said it back in the day is don't mistake activity for achievement. And I think that's so true because there's so many workouts, especially things you see on Instagram and all over the place that are, are, are really cool to watch and cool to, or cool to see. But the problem is, is that they're just cool exercises, but the progressions to them, the overload to them, are very challenged. They, there is nothing to it. And I would argue that with that, with that it's cool exercises and maybe could be thrown into a workout, but they're not foundational exercises within a workout. We're going to get to, to this more later on in the podcast, but you, know, you, you had a pinnacle moment in your life with the accident um, in 2012. Has your philosophy changed at all like in terms of how you approach training? Since it has. It, it has uh, smallly. I'm going to say that and I don't even know if that's a word, but I mean, why not? You know, it sounds good. Uh, so my philosophy has, you know, the, the foundation of it, that comprehensive progressive overload uh, theory, philosophy that goes into it has always been true ever since I was, you know, back as a graduate assistant. But now when I look at a program, when I look at how to implement a program, I'm looking at it from a little bit more of a fine tooth. You know, we, we've, we've become a lot better at objectively measuring a lot of different things. So mobility um, heart rate variabilities, all these different things that are going into it. We have metrics now. We have ways to kind of harness that, 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 that those numbers. So for me, it's maybe not as much of a philosophical thing, but I'm much more educated. I have much more tools at my disposal that I'm able to really pull things out of what the athletes are going through that when I'm programming and I'm actually, you know, making up a workout, I have a better idea of what it's going to look like and, and what, how it's going to be better for them. That's great. So um, during my uh, years there, I felt like you had a, a unique way of getting the best uh, mental side out of us. And let's talk about the mental side of training a little bit. What, what are some ways that you implement your programs and you know, work on building the mental part of the game? Because sports are very physical, but they're so mental as well. And do you incorporate different types of uh, tactics or how do you work on building the, the mental part of sports? Yeah, I, I just love this part of it. You know, the mental side of, of being able to bring a whole team of 30 soccer guys in. I try to set a, a, a blueprint, but a stage of, of competition. Everything that we do 
is with a level of competition. And, and as 18 to 20-some-year-old guys that are coming in, everybody wanting to go first-round draft pick in the MLS, you know, all you got to do is give the, set the challenge out there, and usually you all just you know, kind of rise to the occasion. And, and your team, man, the Indiana men's soccer team, is one of the finest, and I could say that without any uncertainty, as far as you throw them a competition, and they will want to win. And they don't want to just win. They want to crush it. And so when you all came in there, I literally could set the stage of maybe a versa climber workout, maybe a running workout. But all I had to do was throw it out there as far as the challenge. And once I showed you the challenge, once I showed you what needs to be done to win, you all just thrived that. And I think that's one of the biggest things that coaches could really set, you know, make it make their team do things that are above and beyond because competition when you have comp if you're sitting there telling somebody to go harder and do all this stuff well that's going to get you pretty far but if you make the peers you make the people standing side by side fighting for the same position actually set it up that it's a win or loss you get things out of guys that you never thought were possible and people will compete people will do everything that they can to make sure that they're continuing to go and that's what i always try to use you know, our coaches here are incredible. we got legendary coaches. We have all this. But we are a fraction of, of people as far as motivators compared to the own, your own peers that are in with the, uh, with the sport program. So we try to kind of set up the scenarios where you all compete. And once you compete, man, it's, a, it's an easy thing for us to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's an awesome segue. And uh, the next question I have for you, um, like obviously you've worked with a number of different teams and coaches throughout your career. Think about like the most successful coaches you've you've ever had the opportunity to uh, to work alongside, and maybe share some of those qualities and, and characteristics that they possess that not all coaches have. I think that'd be a really you know interesting uh, topic to dive into. Yeah, I've I've been able to work with some real legendary coaches. You know, one of them being Todd Yegley. I mean, Todd Yegley. I mean, I could say this not just because I work with him. I mean, he's one of the most legendary guys I've ever been around. I mean, every day I'm totally amazed at what he's able to kind of orchestrate with these top five-star recruits everywhere. And he has this perfect balance and harmony of guys. We've never had a guy leave here and literally badmouth the guy. I mean, that's all the people that come into the program thinking they're going to be the next big thing out of Indiana soccer, and they may never have stepped on the field. They still leave this program going, man, that was a good experience. And that Todd was a, a very truthful, honest person. And I've also worked for guys like Joe Paterno um, at Penn State. And what I'll tell you is this, the, the commonality with all great coaches and a lot of other ones that I've been around is, is they keep the, they make it about the sport itself. I mean, Indiana men's soccer, it's Indiana men's soccer, and it's about the game. It's about how you conduct yourself. It's about how you approach, you know, from, from, from the actual field of play to the weight room to how you go to class. But it's about the sport itself, and it's not about anything outside of it. And what I've learned is that when it's about the game and then when it's about the things that – the kids are here to actually, and they love. So Tim comes here, and it's about men's soccer. When we keep it about there, when we keep it about the sport, we find a lot of lessons that are to be learned uh, from there. We learn patience. We learn hard work. We learn all these different things that are going to go into them becoming not only a better soccer athlete, but them a better human being. And the best coaches in the world, the best coaches hands down all across this country and, and across the world, they literally keep it about the sport itself and they don't worry about all the other things that are going around it because that's kind of the uh the catch for everybody because if you keep it about what someone loves you'll learn a lot of lessons within that awesome yeah that's that's a uh, great feedback what what have been some of the the most 
the characteristics of the most successful teams that you guys have, that you've worked with personally. Yeah, and I'll even talk about last year's soccer team. I mean, we had a team that returned. I mean, we I think we we graduated eight um, veteran team, veteran guys, and and I got to tell you this: besides two, maybe three guys on that team, they weren't the most highly recruited athletes. I mean, I, I it, within that eight seniors, um, we had three of them that were pretty rec- pretty highly recruited, but the rest of them, uh, the the four or five others. We're all guys that redshirted. They they stuck around their freshman year and literally got their butts kicked on all on all the uh, non-travel stuff. And so the characteristics of that team was that they literally worked their butt off to put them to put themselves into a position of, of of being able to you know go to a final four and possibly compete for that national championship. It's that nonstop, consistent hard work that is the special quality that all great teams have. It's about the focus. It's about doing all the little things right. And last year's team, even though we came up short in that Final Four, I mean, we had it. We had the attention to detail. We had the doing more effort, doing more work um, away from what, what is actually um, you know, mandated and actually coming in here and making not only, not only work, but doing it with deliberate practice. And I talk about that all the time. You know, not mistaking activity for achievement. You could come in and do a ton of extra work, but if it's not deliberate practice and working on the stuff that you're not good at, well, then it's kind of all for nothing. And too often we have a lot of guys that do a lot of effort, but they're doing it in worlds that they like. If they're really fit, they run more. If they're really strong, they lift more. But the really strong guys never want to run, and they're really the guys that can run all day never want to lift. So it's doing the things that you're not good at to make sure you're actually getting better. And that's the thing that is the quality that all great teams will have. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Tim and I are over here shaking our heads in, in agreement. I think Fired up, Tom. I think, um, I think it resonates. Uh, some of the best feedback I've, I've ever gotten, which was outside of sports, it was actually in business, but it was, uh, if you want to be successful in life, wake up and do all the things you don't want to do. And I think that that kind of ties back to your deliberate training. You know, it's like, you know, if you're if you're being very deliberate in what you're focusing on, you're going to be focusing on the stuff that you need to work on, which is always the stuff that you don't want to do. So, And that, that I mean, for me, that, that holds true all the way across the board as well. Like, I mean, I just hate writing and I've really got it into to writing lately and, and putting my thoughts down. And, um, I mean, it's so easy to just go, I'm not doing this today, but it's the exact wrong thing that you need to do, man. You got to dive in full, you know, dive in head first to literally trying to do the things that you just don't like. So, um, I'm like a personal trainer where let's say a new client comes in, they, they have some goals. Maybe they want to lose some weight, build some muscle, shed some fat. Your job is a lot different. There's no scoreboard they're, you're kind of bound, your goals are bound to the greater good and success of the team. How do you know that what you're doing is successful and how, how do you define su- success uh, with your day-to-day job? Man, that's the question of the century right there. That is, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that one, I, I'll, I'll attempt to try and answer it, but the truth is I don't have an exact way. And I think that anybody in this field that will tell you some concrete things, I think they're off on it because... The reality is, is that the strongest athlete always isn't the most productive athlete on the field, and the most productive athletes aren't always the strongest athletes that we deal with. This is what I always, this is how I know I'm doing my job well. I know I have a baseline, so when a kid comes in as a freshman, I'll have baseline numbers of where they're at. All I ask is that they continue to make each day better than the last. They continually keep moving up the ladder every single day. If I could look at that as them getting stronger, 
I could put a flexibility gauge to it to objectively measure, and I could get them fitness, their fitness-wise to be better. Well, objectively, I could say that I'm doing my part as far as the strength training part of it. But the strength training part of it, 18 to 20-some-year-olds, it's super easy. I mean, to get somebody stronger is not very challenging. You will get stronger just in the fact of growth from 18 to 20-some. So it's a tough thing to say that that is the end-all deal. The bigger part of a strength coach is that person that's allowed to be around these guys all year round. So the, 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 the influence of the maturation process of literally being able to influence guys, of making better decisions, of being able to go out there and knowing that the, doing the minimum isn't the thing that's going to get them to the next level. And it's that connection you make. So I'll tell you this. The way I look at it is every single year that we go into our banquet and our guys get to speak and our guys get to talk, and they sit up there and they, they thank you for things that you've done. And they actually tell a story about maybe something that you personally have done. That thing right there, although I never get a pay raise for it or anything like that, that's the most, I guess, humbling um, but rewarding deal to make, it, make me know that I actually did a really good job for this kid. Because this kid has come in as a young 18-year-old and matured into a grown man and is able to see the, the idea of what the weight room does what maturity can do, and how I influence them on that. The other part of it is, you know, getting that invite. I just got it from Tim uh, to come to a wedding, sharing events of later on. These things are all tough because I don't have an objective way to sit there and go uh, in the four years you're here, but it's the after effect that you have on the athletes. Uh, what a strength coach is allowed to do is be around the athlete almost all year round. And being able to do that and influence them and then having the ability to go and see what they're doing later on in life uh, is just an incredible deal that as strength coaches, we all kind of share because we all get everybody stronger. We all are kind of, uh, I guess, uh, held accountable to wins and losses, even though our influence on that isn't as strong. But it's the big effect after it. It's, it's the banquets. It's the weddings. It's the, it's the birthdays. It's all that stuff you get invited to because it makes it all worthwhile. That's powerful stuff, man. Love it. Um, yeah, so I think uh, kind of segueing into, you know, this accident we, we referred to um, a couple of times throughout the, the podcast. In, in, you know, May 2012, you suffered a life-changing accident that left you paralyzed from the waist down. Um, and, uh, you know, talking to Tim, you know, he's told me you described this as going from being on top of the world, both physically and mentally, to just completely zeroed out. Um, you were racing some of the toughest races on earth. You went from that to, to not being able to push a wheelchair five feet. Uh, take us through that, that emotional and, uh, day uh, of the accident and kind of give us the, the real-life uh, feels of, of, of what you went through. Yeah, so, you know, that, that morning, I mean, May 17th of 2012, I came into work 6 a.m., trained the women's basketball program, and then had a handful of our men's soccer guys uh, but by 8.30, man, I was, I was done, and I was ready to hit the trail. You know, it was going to be this short little training ride. Had a huge race that weekend. I mean, I was at that point riding some of the toughest races, you know, throughout the country, riding at a level that was, you know, bigger than I even thought I could ride. And, and it was, it, you know, I felt like I was on top of the world. And um, on the fourth lap of this, of this training ride, I went around a corner, and I hit something. And before you knew it, I was rolling head over heels, flying through the air, and all of a sudden, impact of the ground smashed my head, smashed my neck, and it literally blew apart my C6, C7 vertebrae. You know, I hit the ground and laid there, and uh, I couldn't move. I mean, I couldn't move not only my legs, 
but I couldn't move. My upper body and my hands didn't work at all. And 15 minutes into this, when I finally got my bearings, I got myself under control. You know, I reached in my back pocket. I had this cycling jersey on and had my phone in it. And um, I reached behind there and I started digging in, digging and digging, trying to grab this phone. And I could feel the phone. And I was trying to pull this thing out and could not budge it. And, and it was a very humbling feeling to know that I was stuck in the woods. I could not move. I mean, I was felt like I was suction cup to the ground and I was kind of hopeless. I had no, I had no, I had no way of moving. I had no way of getting help. And so I laid there, you know, for first hour was about not being able to move. Second hour that went by the intense burn that just ripped through my body was just, it had me on fire. But by hour three, man, I mean, I didn't know. I just didn't know what was around the corner. I, I, my breath had shallowed. I was having trouble kind of pronunciating or saying anything. Uh, my heart rate was dropping. And, and the truth is, man, I didn't, I, didn't know, I didn't know if I'd ever go home again. And um, luckily, at three and a half hours into this, though, you know, two riders came by, and they quickly called for help. You know, I immediately got help sent to uh, Methodist Hospital um, in Indianapolis, went under surgery, and, uh, you know, kind of been on this journey ever since. But five days after this accident, I was, I was pretty optimistic, pretty high on, you know, I'm going to get up, I'm going to walk, I'm going to you know, get back on a bike. And then throughout that, that fifth day of just going through my really first day of rehab, I realized that walking was the least of my worries. You know, I, I lost all independence. And it was a sobering, humbling, and just defeating uh, kind of thought process. And that night I laid in bed and I just didn't know where to turn. And, you know, I always say this when I talk to people, it's this thought, this uh, quote popped into my head by J.K. Rawlings, you know, the, the author of the Harry Potter books. But she said back in the day, and I heard it so many times, but it never resonated, was rock bottom became the solid foundation on which I rebuilt my life. And, and I thought that night, man, I'm not going to let this thing define me. I'm not going to let it define me. And it fueled me, that, that quote, that everything fueled me to literally go through a year of rehab. And that year of rehab started with me reflecting on who I was just five days before. And that person was a guy that you know, had a family of his dreams. I mean, I've been with my wife for since I was 12 years old. You know, had a job that I didn't really know. I, I mean, it was like I never went to work. It was just like I was retired. And then I was doing sport that was you know, above a level that I ever even thought. It was all in question. And so I went from all of that to what I call being zeroed out, you know, kind of rock bottom that, and then systematically, you know, built back, gained my independence back, uh, worked on that. A year later, came out of rehab and then got into, um, came back to my job and uh, start training athletes again and being a part of this IU family and, and just trying to make the best of everything and just trying to thrive. And then two months after that, I got on a hand cycle for the first time. And that getting on the hand cycle, man, it just, it brought back all the stuff that I've always done before as far as racing, as far as competing, as far as getting out there. And um, it re-energized me. And, and I was quickly able to move up the ranks in the world of hand cycling, start racing, and uh, moved into the world where it's, you know, been kind of at the national level and, and competing all over the place. So it's been quite a up and down roller coaster. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's been tough. And uh, the journey is nonstop and continually moving forward. But it's given me a perspective on life you know, about growth and doing things that are hard to, to be able to get out there and, and just keep doing them because it's going to make the future and the reward and uh, the, the feedback so much better.
Yeah, that, that is uh, an unbelievable story. And, you know, Tom, I I know it's it's got to be, or I'd imagine it's probably tough to talk talk about. So we appreciate you taking the time to, to speak about this stuff today. You know, I sent you an email last night sharing uh, the story about, you know, my personal story with um, spinal cord injury with my dad. And, you know, he uh, he said uh, roadblocks to me are like speed bumps to him. And, and basically, point being is just like getting out of bed every morning is just, it's a, it can be a monumental task. I mean, I've, I've helped them up. I've helped them in bed. Like tell, you know, I think for, for, our, for our audience, it's important for them, I think, to understand, you know, you, you, you see people in wheelchairs and you don't really realize the, the depth at which it, that they struggle with a lot of stuff. So, I mean, I think maybe shedding some, some insights into, to, you know, what my dad meant by that, because I know you, you know exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about. And that, and so with the, you know, your, your dad and I, we have the exact same injury. And it's actually, you know, it's a chest down injury. So you have no core. You have no ability to flex your abs or, or keep you upright uh, yep. without the assistance of, of the wheelchair. And so and then with that being said, you have, you know, my hands, fortunately, are, are pretty strong, but they're not nearly what they were. But let's just even go back to the, you know, the, every morning, you know, alarm rings. And then you got to figure out kind of where your legs are orientated at because you don't have a real perspective on even where your legs moved at night. And so it's a basic feel and try and move around, try and get your legs all untangled or straightened out. Usually in the morning, they're so tight that they just kind of lock up on you. So you got to go, for me personally, I have to go through a series of about 15 minutes just to stretch and get them loose so I could get moving. Then you transfer into your wheelchair. You know, transferring into your wheelchair I could say it's almost 10x times harder than just standing up. I mean, you're doing with your arms. You're trying to make sure you're bridging a gap from the bed to the to the wheelchair itself. And so this is a this is pretty this is a lot more effort that goes into it than just standing up. But at that point is when my life starts going because for me, if my legs are relaxed, which is a very welcome thing, I have a lot of spasms. But if my legs are relaxed, it's a great morning because they're relaxed and they're not jumping around. But the, the double-edged sword to that is when they're relaxed, they're not pumping blood up to my brain. So as soon as I sit in my wheelchair, all of the blood goes from my brain down to my feet, and I immediately get lightheaded. And so being lightheaded is, uh, is okay if you could stay awake. But the problem is, is that if you're lightheaded and you stay up for too long, you end up passing out. So any given day, I could have it planned out that I'm going to give myself an hour to get dressed, get in the car, and get to work. Any given day, it could take me upwards of an hour just to be able to not pass out by getting up, laying back down, getting up, laying back down. And so this process of just getting out of bed, depending on how tight your legs are, getting dressed, moving, doing all these different variables that are in there, everything becomes not only harder, it just becomes so time-consuming. And I had a, a person, I can't think of who told me it, but they're like, you know, you won't understand until years pass you won't understand how much time goes into the actual injury or the wheelchair itself because the, the wheelchair itself to the mobility of it isn't that challenging. It's all the things that are geared around it. It's all the things of, you know, from going to the bathroom, it takes so much longer to um, getting in and out of a car to, to just getting anywhere. It's, it's up to 10 times longer just to do that. Not to mention when someone texts you and you got the text message. Well, most of the people are on their phones when they're walking. They text. They do all this stuff. Well, when your hands are always pushing on a wheel, you can't look at your phone. So the overall duration of just 
overall work falls behind because you got all that stuff going. So, um, again, I think I'm going down a rabbit hole of a whole big picture on there. But um, backtracking a little of just getting out of bed is um, it's certainly a really challenging thing. But nonetheless, it's really re- rewarding because you have perspective on the days of, you know, my body feels good. I just got out of bed. My legs are kind of loose. My head's kind of clear. I'm just going to get up. And you have the most joy for those days. You keep that stuff in perspective and you don't ever, you know, when it's good, you, you live in that moment. And, and that's the thing that this has taught me is to live in the moment, live and be present, live and understand that today is good, man. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about any of this other stuff, plan for it, but just understand right now is good. You got to live it. And if it's bad, it'll get better tomorrow. And so I hope that answers your question, but it definitely is, um, it makes it a little bit more challenging. Yeah, that that, that is uh, spot on with what I've you know what I've seen with, with my dad and what we've kind of lived through together since 1994. So um, no, I think that's that's important, man, for people to understand that stuff. Like I think it's uh, spinal cord injury, SCI. It's something that not a lot of people I think understand those those deeper challenges that that you have to fight through every single day. So um, I just want our audience to know how impressive it is. We're going to go into more more detail, I think, and. Um, some of the the next questions that we got here, but um, but it's imp- it's super impressive what you've been able to do over the past seven years, and I think people need to know that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, Tom. And going back a little bit, I mean, your story for me, 2012, that day I'll never forget it because I came in after uh, class. There was a workout on the board, but you've never missed a, a workout in my four years there. The next day, the day after your accident, you texted me. Uh, apologizing, still had no idea what happened to you for not making a workout, and then comes full circle. It just shows the the type of person that you are. And because of that accident, 2012, when we won national championship, you were in rehab. And I want to ask a couple questions about you know your splitting time between Bloomington and Louisville, kind of what the the rehab looked like for you. But I truly believe, and we've talked about this a lot, that we would not have won. The championship without your inspiration and story and you know the our rings have tom's team etched inside of them the the warm-up tops had uh, dumbbells and tom's team on the back of them for that year so i i just want to say I, I know that we would not have uh, done what we did that year if it wasn't for you but that means a lot tim i really appreciate that i i, I really really do man thank you yeah so you were splitting time between Bloomington and Louisville. What just describe the rehab process and some of the, the challenges that you faced um, during that that year before you came back to work at IU? Yeah, so th- this is the biggest thing about a spinal cord injury is uh, the amount of I don't knows that you get. You know, there's no kind of there's no path for a spinal cord injury. There's no you know cure. There's no there's there's just a lot of people that are really trying to figure it out. But unfortunately. Um, there's nothing that's foolproof right now as far as your rehab. So your best case scenario is to get in some of these facilities, which luckily I have been, or luckily we're close to Louisville, um, which is one of the world-renowned places for spinal cord research. Um, but you you got to figure this. The day after uh, my, I was, uh, the day after surgery, I laid in the hospital room and I could not pinch my fingers together. I was able to do on my right hand, my pointer finger and my thumb. And I just laid there just trying to figure out what is going on. Like, I mean, you don't, you don't grasp the, like when you don't have any of this stuff, it's not until you really start moving and you start trying to 
do things that you realize, holy crap, I can't, I can't do this. Like it's just not there. And so I laid in bed that the, the, that initial day, and I just kept trying to pinch my fingers, pinch my fingers, and moving. And and they slowly but surely started moving a little bit. But my left hand didn't move at all. But I remember taking that. Uh, it took me almost three weeks. It took me you know 22 days, I think it was, after the accident for me to be able to take my all five or all 10 fingers and touch my opposing thumb, like be able to kind of go through each of them. And it was that fine motor skills, the fine little things that I thought, if I could just keep doing these little goals, I'll be able to keep moving forward. And so that's where my focus was, man, was just literally touching finger to finger, kind of rolling through there. But the bigger picture was is that the time you're in rehab, you're split between trying to give yourself the best case scenario for, for return, you know, walking um, and doing different things. And the way they do that is they call it locomotor training. But basically, they put you up on a treadmill in a harness, and then they manually walk your legs on a treadmill. And you go through this for hours, you know, an hour to two a day of just literally trying to walk it. And the, the idea, the concept behind that is trying to get as much impulses, as much feedback from the feet up through the, or up through, uh, the spine and then get the, the brain trying to connect. So you try it from two different ends and you just work on doing that. But the other part of it is you're paralyzed and you can't, the ability to orientate your body, the ability to move your body, you've never done when you had this lack of stuff moving. And so you work on building your strength up, but you work on these new skill sets of learning how to transfer from a bed to a wheelchair, working on how to even do a push-up again. I mean, when you don't have the muscles working, your shoulders aren't firing the right way, your chest isn't firing, your triceps aren't, the ability to do a push-up, it took me, I mean, it took me a few days, which I thought it took a long time, but realizing now that it was like, you know, within a week, I was able to actually get a push-up there. It was a pretty good goal. It was a pretty cool thing that I was able to do. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that every day that went by, I figured out new things that I couldn't do. And there were new objectives of how to go about doing that. And I would split between doing the actual treadmill stuff and just figuring out the things I couldn't do, like putting socks on or brushing my teeth or, or taking care of myself bathing wise. All these things, it was split back and forth. But you got to realize, like, you're when you rehab an ACL, you rehab an ACL and there's a progress process of, of gaining this back. But the reality is, is you change your life a little bit. But for the most part, you're able to kind of do everything. You know, maybe you can't drive because you can't hit a pedal. Maybe, but the truth is, like, you could do most of it with a spinal cord injury. You're not only trying to cure the spinal cord injury, you're trying to develop a whole new skill set with a whole new body. So it's pretty intensive on both ends of that. You, you went from being able to, to push your fingers together in 2012 to getting back to work in 2013. Is that is that right? That is, yes. I mean, that, that is, like, so impressive. I kudos, seriously. I cannot even imagine going that far in that that small amount of time once you got back to work walk us through i know you talked to, talked a little bit about just kind of the rehab portion of it but you uh you roll in there day one back from the accident man tell us about the uh the emotions um tell us about you know that experience that um it's got to be an incredible feeling to, to to get back that quick yeah it was an incredible but like uh scary uh feeling and and I got to tell you, so we have one of the largest weight rooms in the country, 25,000 square feet. The college weight rooms are loud. They're intense. They're 100 miles an hour. And we're dealing with not only, you know, athletic people, we're dealing with the nation's best. I mean, and the nation's best that want to be the nation's best. So 
I came back to work and I was worried. I was kind of scared because I wanted to be a strength coach again. I wanted to do all this stuff, but I was scared. And it wasn't the fact of how I was going to teach a person to get stronger or teach them to run. It was the fact of judgment. I was so scared that you get back with Tim Wiley and all he does is see the chair. He feels bad for me. He feels whatever. I just didn't want to be treated any different. And I was scared of what the athletes were going to think. I was scared of what IU was going to think. And so I tell this story basically on day one. I, I come into work and I come downstairs and uh, I'm, I'm coming back and I'm training the women's basketball team. And so like me, I forget everything. I come into work and I need to run back up to my car uh, because I forgot something. So on my way up to upstairs, I'm going out towards my car. And like I said, my legs have spasms. So they, they jump around a little bit. Well, this time my leg jumped off of the chair and it fell forward. Well, I don't know how I did it, but I guess when I leaned forward to grab my foot and pull it back on, I hit a little curb. And when I hit a little curb, I went flying through the air, flying through the air, smack down on the ground. There I am laying there. The only fear I had was I didn't want to be treated different. And now here I am, the guy paralyzed, laying in front of the north end zone of the, of the football stadium on his back out of the chair. And to make matters worse, who's walking by? with the entire baseball team. And so I thought, man, this is not how I wanted to start day one. <laughs> so two guys look over and they look at me and they yell, hey, can we help? You, you need help. And so I'm like, ah, yeah, I'll take it. So they're in the middle of a conversation and they come over to me and they're still talking about like the night before or whatever. And they quickly break conversation. They ask what they could do. I tell them to pick me up, throw me in the chair. They continue with their conversation. They pick me up, throw me in my chair. And they ask if they can, you know, is there anything else? And I'm like, no, that's it. And so they go back in They're They're going to do a lift. I go to my car and I'm scared. Like, I'm just like, man, this is not what I wanted. I know when I get downstairs, I'm going to have people looking at me now because I'm the, the guy in the wheel. They just had a pickup. I'm going to have coaches worried, all this. And so I came downstairs and I went through the doors and I was greeted with people that say, hey, welcome back. Uh, but that was it. And I didn't say anything. And so I trained women's basketball, um, had a bunch of them, you know, puking which is i don't encourage but when you get an athlete <laughs> yeah you know they're working for you so it was a good it was a, it was good feedback and so that that lift ended and i was talked to a bunch of other people and then still no one addressed anything and so the days went by and days went by and days went by and no one said a word about this and the truth is this i asked this uh, years later when i start telling this story and none of those guys those two athletes that are just college age athletes they just helped the guy and put him in a chair. They didn't see me as anything different. They didn't see me as anything, anything. They just helped me out and never went and spread it. It was never a story. And I say that because too many times, man, I just, it's our own heads that are our limiters. It's our own worry about judgment from other people. It's our own worry about all this stuff. And for me, if I would have allowed that judgment of what I thought others were thinking, I may have never returned to work. So, I mean, that was the main thing that I was so apprehensive about. And it was one of the main things I realized it didn't even exist. It wasn't even a it wasn't even on the radar of people. So I always say, tell that because I came in back into a world that was teach people how to run, teach people and some of the obvious things that are going to be a challenge. The only thing that was obvious to me was I didn't want to be judged. And the reality was, is they didn't judge at all, man. And I was able to come back into a work setting that, um, you know, like I said, I feel like I'm back working and never, never have worked a day in my life. Tom, this past weekend I saw on Instagram, I'm scrolling through right now, you and Krista went back to 
visit Ground Zero for the first time in seven years. Can you describe that experience of being back there? And uh, you were on an awesome new bike that you have um, that I love watching videos of. But what was it like being back at the, the location of the accident and for the first time? So I'm going to quick throw a little plug out there because I got to tell you that bike, it's called the Bowhead Reach, but it's uh, Bowhead Corp is the, is the company's name. And they nailed this thing because, I mean, it takes being paralyzed and allows you to the freedom to literally go anywhere. And to be able to get on that single track again, to go back to ground zero is a testament of how durable and what this thing could do. So anybody that's listening that might be in a chair or if you just want a heck of a fun piece, go on bowhead.com because it's incredible. That, that's my little plug for them because I do love it. But um, going back to ground zero, I got to tell you this. I tell Tim, or I told uh, Chris this all the time. I said, I think the biggest gift, maybe the biggest blessing I ever have is I'm kind of oblivious to a whole bunch of stuff. Like me going back to ground zero, I just never held on to any emotion. I never held on to any animosity. I never held on to a why me. I never held on to anything that that particular spot or that ride did to my life and how it changed my life. And so when I went back there, it was literally more shocking. I was waiting to see like, this sharp right turn on this downhill with this big boulder that I hit this rock and flew through the air. I thought it would be, it'd only add to my story. And the reality was I still don't know how I wrecked because it wasn't that glamorous of a, of a trail. It wasn't even that hard, but I went back there and I did have, I mean, I had an emotion of just sitting there and looking up and seeing a tower of this cell tower out there. But other than that, you know, it is what it is. I just kind of, you know, I can't worry about then, and all I can worry about is the future and just moving on. Now, with that being said, I had two friends that were with me and then my wife, and both of them, they were all a little bit more emotional, a little bit more, um, you know, not, a, not, not, not upset, but, excuse me, but uh, they, they had a little bit different account. But I got to tell you, man, I think one of the strongest things that you could ever do is, is just realize, learn from the past, and just move on, and, and don't hold on to that stuff because, um it just does no good for anything. And, and so, so yeah, uh, but that's basically where it's at. It's gotta be an emotional, uh, an emotional one. And, uh, speaking of emotions, I, I told myself before that I was not going to cry during this one or get teared up. Okay. I think everyone at upper hand knows that I, I, I uh, tend to let my emotions uh, roll to tears, but, um, uh, but I made it through just, it's hot in here. just so the audience knows it's a little, little stuffy, but no <laughs> tears. Um, but no, I, I, you know, like every time I drive by the, the spot of my dad's accident, it was, uh, just outside of Louisville. Um, you know, you just, you can't help, you, you always remember it, you know, and it, it certainly is like one of those things that forever, I think corrects your life. It, it definitely makes things a lot more, a lot more real. You appreciate things a lot more. And, and you know, this is me still being able to walk, but just having gone through it with my dad. I certainly appreciate, you know, what it can do to your life if you have a positive mentality, you know, going back to what you were saying. It's really refreshing to, to hear everything you've been saying. And I think uh, hopefully our audience takes away, you know, just, just the fact that you got to take it one day at a time and, and just keep that positive attitude, even though I'm sure there are so many days where, um, you know, you just do not even feel like getting out of bed and tackling what? the day. It's just, it's, uh, it's, it's so many hurdles in front of you. That's awesome. I mean, so one, one thing I just want to say, um, I know you started leveraging social media as a method to inspire and motivate people. What is the core message that you want to spread to others? Um, and, and what have you learned? One thing that you've learned throughout this journey, what, what would that be that you'd want to, um, to translate to our audience? Yeah, the biggest thing I could say is, and it's kind of tying off of what you're saying 
is is I just firmly believe everything in life is a choice. You know how you how you handle things, how you see things is a choice. And and I think optimism, even though sometimes we want to be, you know, there's there's certain events in our life that'll want to kind of make us move away from that optimistic mindset. I think it's a it's I know it's a choice right now to sit there and go, this is how I'm going to stay engaged in this. And I had a great question last night. I got to speak to our football team, and one of the guys asked, you know, how how to keep your mindset when you're going down, when it's your mind is switching from optimism, you know, switching from the thing of seeing the glasses not half empty or half full, but seeing it as 100% full, half air, half water. How do you go from not seeing, or how do you go and make sure that you stay in line with optimism and see the good in everything? And the truth is, I don't have the exact answer for that besides every time that I feel myself moving in that direction, I give myself 10 seconds because I think 10 seconds is the amount of duration that I could choose to either stay going down that path or make the choice to kind of say, now you got to see the good in this, see the optimism in it, see adversity creating an opportunity. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I've learned from this journey is optimism creates the ability to look at adversity and see it how it creates opportunity. And so for me, when I look at adversity, before I shied away from it a little bit, I didn't want to deal with it. Well, now it's kind of a welcoming thing because the more adverse stuff that's in my life, the stronger I'm going to get, the more growth I'm going to get. And I am literally enthralled with the fact of just getting better. I just want to continue to keep moving forward in whatever capacity. And it's given me the perspective of life of, you know, stay optimistic because if you could keep being optimistic and use that as your choice to stay optimistic, you'll see adversity as an opportunity to grow. That's awesome. How can people get in touch with you and learn more about your story like and, and engage in just kind of the inspiration that you're, you're putting out there for people? Yeah, I mean, definitely visit my website at TomMorrisPerformance.com. Um, but then everything else, social media-wise, is at Tom Morris Performance. And, uh, yeah, I'm really trying to be active as far as reaching out through social media. Um, had some great feedback, uh, you know, from, you know, 15 to 18-year-olds all the way up into, like, 60- and 70-year-olds and just hearing my story and, and letting things resonate with them. But that's my whole objective is to just be able to share this story and keep life in perspective and allow people to make, you know, to, today better than yesterday. And, and I always say, make today better than yesterday. And if, you, if you're fortunate enough to have tomorrow, then you make that day better than what today was. And that's my whole goal, and that's the whole objective of, of sharing this story. It's awesome. Thanks, Tom. We really appreciate it. Tom, I will say, man, that it's, uh, you know, you and I have kept in touch over the years and I followed your story. Um, but it's a different level being able to sit here and, and talk to you about it in this type of setting. And uh, it's been a, an awesome experience. Tim, I appreciate it, man. I, I appreciate our friendship and, and all the years that we have spent together. And someday you, me and Nate Mitchell need to get back on the triathlon course and compete against each other. See, now, Miles, he didn't tell you this, but I think no, I, I did. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, I, but, but I did beat you, I think, by a little bit there, Tim. Hi. Oh, yeah, you smoked me. Uh, it was such a great time, man. Now, I'll tell you this, man, as a strength coach, getting you guys stronger is, like I said, that's just such a small part of, of this, the friendship that's built to see you guys turn into uh, the, the men that you have. I mean, this is it's the most rewarding part of this whole journey. Tom, can't thank you enough, man, for joining us today. You guys were awesome. We, you were, Tom. We really appreciate it, man. Great talking to you. You bet. Thank you, sir.